Hello, I'm Luciana de Medeiros, Director at Bank of America, and you are listening to Treasury Insights Podcast. With me today is Greg Crichton, Global Finance and Operations Director at Dow Chemical, and Michael Busacco, Director and part of the Global Transaction Services Advisory Team at Bank of America. And today we will explore the latest trend with in-house banks and hear how an external bank plays a role. Welcome, Greg and Michael. Hi, Luciana. Thank you for having me. Hi, Luciana. Hi, thanks. Many corporates are seeking to improve efficiency by centralizing core treasury functions and aggregating subsidiary transaction flows and risks. With that in mind, given your experience, Greg, describe how any house bank could support process efficiency and centralization efforts. Thanks, Luciana. How we approached it was first, what is the problem we were trying to solve? For us who had gone through a history of evolution of centralization, we were largely centralized in a lot of our processes. The problem we were trying to solve was the amount of bank accounts that we had to manage, the amount of different currencies that we had bank accounts for all of our different legal entities around the world. There was also an element of concentration of cash to kind of go away from the traditional zero balancing and to try and concentrate all the transactions into one account from the start. So that was the problem we were trying to solve with really implementing the in-house bank as we have done it. Thanks, Greg. I'm interested to hear your perspective on the concentration and decentralization tool that you've used, and how do you optimize the benefits of an in-house bank? We use our in-house bank for a number of purposes, and we more think of the in-house bank as a functionality as opposed to a legal entity. We have multiple legal entities that perform the functions of an in-house bank. So I'm more going to concentrate on the functionality of our in-house bank. We have full pay on behalf, or as we call POBO. So all our payments for all the non-regulated countries around the world flow through an in-house bank. That concentrates payments in different currencies to just a bank account per currency in the clearing systems of that currency around the world example would be our U.S. entity paying in Japanese yen, the in-house bank will pay that invoice in Japan with a bank account in Japan. We also have the same for our receipts, although we only really are doing two currencies at the moment, which is dollars and euros, where again, all our customer receipts through virtual bank accounts also land up in the in-house bank entity. And that shortcuts the whole zero balancing because all of the transactions are happening in the one account. That's kind of the efficiencies we get. The biggest one is the fewer bank accounts, so a lot less control that we have to maintain signatories, etc. And it's really simplified our transactional banking network dramatically. Thanks, Greg. Today, many companies have a surplus of liquidity in one location, but need to borrow in another. Can you elaborate on how a house bank changed the liquidity management structure And as a follow-up, can the virtual account structure have a rightful place within any house bank arrangement? Luciano, I think our experience is that we very quickly in the day get to one balance per currency, given that all of the transactions are really happening through one bank account per currency. So we very quickly get a euro position, a Swedish krona, a pound, a Swiss dollar, etc., And it's really nice that it's all already concentrated there. So you can almost get the real-time feeds from the bank to really see what your balances are going to be. So it's helped us a lot with forecasting our cash positions for a day. 
and it's made that process a lot quicker for our folks that do this work. A lot of it is really in one place for them to manage it more effectively. The virtual accounts, and we really only use those on the receipt side, that's just a way to suit our internal accounting rules. So the invoicing entity is also the one that needs to receive the money or at least to look like it's receiving the money. And our virtual accounts have really made that we don't have to change the rest of the processes within our company. The ones that come further down the line, cash allocation, accounting, etc., but still maintain our centralization of liquidity. And virtual accounts have helped us a lot. And Luciana, in-house banking and the idea of centralization is a mature subject. But as technology has shifted and enabled additional innovative ways of managing liquidity, of managing internal funding, inclusive of virtual accounts. It's taken that mature product of centralization in-house banking into something that has a renewed or reimagined view. And I think as you consider, does a virtual account have a rightful place in an in-house bank arrangement? I'm going to go back to what Greg said. It depends on the problem that you're trying to solve. Inevitably, there are targeted use cases for virtual accounts. Within an in-house bank, you have in principle, created virtual accounts. They just happen to be internal amongst the various subsidiaries and parent or in-house bank on the ledger. The virtual account is both on ledger and external, so think of it as a dual filing system. And as such, it does have applicability within an in-house bank structure, but not as a impulsive reaction to let's add virtual accounts just for the sake of doing it. What's the problem that it's going to solve? That's the question that needs to be answered, just as Greg outlined, from moving from centralized to in-house bank. So is there a place? Absolutely. Is there an analysis and a business case to follow before deploying? Absolutely. Thanks, Michael. Both of you have mentioned about what is the problem that the in-house bank would solve in that case. And having this in mind, once you have defined that you want to proceed with the in-house bank structure, Many of the major finance and treasury technology vendors offering house bank solutions that can integrate with existing systems. Considering this and talking about the other technology vendors, and Greg, from your experience, what role does an external bank play? And that there's any consideration particular by region, how have you approached that? We've tried to keep all our solutions to be as bank agnostic as possible. We utilize SWIFT a lot, so that helps with the bank agnostic aspect. We need reliable partners that just do the bread and butter work and do it well. People who process payments and collect receipts from our customers. That's 90% of what we do every day. And we need reliable partners and partners that understand what we are doing as well. So understanding that we do have an in-house bank, the virtual accounts are important. It is important when we launch a project to restructure the MT940 and how it looks, you know, that we have reliable partners that can make that happen. There's other solutions out there for maybe smaller or medium-sized enterprises where the e-banking tools are fantastic. If you are using one bank, the e-banking tools really can do pretty much everything that a bigger TMS system can do. I think once you get to a bigger, more global organization where you know it's impossible to just use one bank everywhere, that's when you start really wanting to be a lot more bank agnostic. But it's not a total requirement. Luciana, I'll follow up with 
The bank's role is to help its clients escape their limits. That is our responsibility as an institution. And the limits of our clients are different. In the case of Dow, and as Greg just referenced, his limits are imposed by the bank for getting its core requirement, and that is to provide core banking services. Frictionless environment is where technology is driving all of us. And we need to embrace that in a way that allows our clients, again, to escape the limits that are imposed by their own processes in some cases, that are imposed by technology constraints, resource constraints, constrained by liquidity optimization constraints. Banks' role are to step in and provide thought leadership and solutions that enable our clients to escape their limits. It is important that the bank understands, as Greg points out, treasury, treasury operations, and where we should be and should not be in a particular workflow within that operation. It's incredibly important. That's what advisory is often stepping into. It's workflow awareness, upstream and downstream of the limitation, and then providing assurance that we can offer a frictionless environment so that the client benefits from any kind of change, implementation, or configuration. Thanks, Michael. I would love to hear your thoughts on the considerations to setting up the in-house bank, considering each client has its own limitation, right? So in your advisory role, what are the considerations that the clients would take to start off this process? Greg, certainly follow me on this one, but it's a tax-driven initiative, meaning conceptually it's treasury-owned, but corporately tax is ultimately going to help define alongside legal and determine where the in-house bank should be situated within an organization. That is requirement number one. And as tax is making that decision in order to make it in good faith, Treasury obviously has to define what are the services that the in-house bank is going to perform. In the case of Dow, it sounds like it's pay on behalf of, receive on behalf of. There's a list of services that an in-house bank could perform. What entities, what countries have restrictions about deploying that kind of structure? So then you're starting to get the walls up around the bank. You're starting to fill the inside of the bank. And then you start to consider the consequence of deploying. An in-house bank, as one of its services, should perform intercompany lending. So if there are already existing intercompany loans outstanding, which in many cases there would be, a decision has to be made as whether to unwind those positions and then put them all through the centralized in-house bank where all currency accounts now reside, or if they remain outstanding and then you start fresh with all new ones moving through the in-house bank. And obviously it's going to change what procedures look like. Some policy changes are going to be at play. And certainly there's going to be a reporting element on the part of the bank to ensure that all participants are informed of their positions within the bank from an intercompany standpoint. And there are many other considerations. It sounds like a lot, and there are. And I think as Greg has kind of informed us, there's tremendous benefit. Yeah, Michael, I think you pretty much hit that. The days of treasuries operating in a vacuum are over. We're the product of the companies that we are part of. We have to 
make sure that the needs of the company are met. Yes, we use our in-house bank a lot for intercompany funding. We do all our intercompany settlements globally cashless through the in-house bank as well. So it performs a lot of functions. And all of these, as you highlighted, touch on many other aspects of the company, tax, legal, procurement, sourcing, you know, our businesses, because collections is a key part of the sale. We're always very sensitive to our customers and making that customer experience as easy and seamless as possible. They pay and we can quickly allocate the funds to their account. There's a lot of different groups within the company that you have to work with. And not just in finance, there's all the accounting that goes around all of this and complying with all the accounting rules around the world. You have to decide what is our problem and what do we want to solve? And then who do we bring into this process to help us solve it? Part of that then is also going to be the banks. And it's probably even going to be some outside consultants because there's quite a lot of IT configuration work that needs to be done. It starts adding up. But from my experience, the benefits are just enormous. Thanks, Greg. That's great that both of you were able to kind of to share your perspective on this. And it's a good start for all the clients that are trying to move along this journey. There are so many more questions that I would love to ask, but unfortunately, this is all the time will allow us. Greg and Michael, thank you for your insights. I know you keep hearing about these trends and strategies in the months and years to come. Thank you. Thanks, Luciana. I'm Luciana de Medeiros, Director at Bank of America, and my co-hosts are Greg Crichton, Global Financial Operations Directors at Dow Chemical, and Michael Busacco, Director and part of the Global Transaction Service Advisory Team at Bank of America. Thank you for listening to our Treasury Insights podcast series. Bank of America and B of A Securities are the marketing names used by the Global Banking and Global Markets Divisions of Bank of America Corporation. Lending, other commercial banking activities, and trading in certain financial instruments are performed globally by banking affiliates of Bank of America Corporation, including Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Trading in securities and financial instruments and strategic advisory and other investment banking activities are performed globally by investment banking affiliates of Bank of America Corporation, investment banking affiliates, including in the United States, B of A Securities Incorporated and Merrill Lynch Professional Clearing Corp, both of which are registered broker-dealers and members of SIPC and in other jurisdictions by locally registered entities. B of A Securities Incorporated and Merrill Lynch Professional Clearing Corp. are registered as futures commission merchants with the CFTC and are members of the NFA. Investment products offered by investment banking affiliates are not FDIC insured, may lose value, and are not bank guaranteed.